Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I don't know who killed Paul or Maggie Murdoch, but it looks like we're closer to getting answers. As we exclusively reported this week on Fitznews.com, high-velocity impact spatter directly links Alec Murdoch to the homicides of his wife and son, according to our sources. And that is a big deal. My name is Mandy Matney. I've been investigating the Murdoch family for more than three years now. This is the Murdoch Murders Podcast with David Moses and Liz Farrell. So back in early January, in our first episode of 2022, we broke a big story in the double homicide investigation of Maggie and Paul Murdoch. In episode 26, we reported that there was direct physical evidence that placed Alec Murdoch at Moselle at the time his wife and son were killed. Back in January, we couldn't tell you what that evidence was. But since then, multiple sources have told Fitz News that high-velocity impact spatter was present on the shirt Alec Murdoch was wearing the night of the double homicides. And this evidence has been independently analyzed and confirmed by multiple forensic experts, including at least one out-of-state laboratory. This evidence not only directly places Alec Murdoch at the scene of the double homicide at the time of the killings, it puts him in proximity to one or both of his family members as they were shot. As a reminder, Alec has maintained his innocence from the beginning. His attorneys say they accounted for every move of his that night. And at the time the coroners say Maggie and Paul were killed, they claimed Alec was with his mother 20 minutes away watching a game show on television with her. We're gonna play a short clip when Jim Griffin was interviewed by Fox Carolina in October 2021. I can assure you that we have Alex's whereabouts and accounted for completely during that period of time. That night, he is he's at, uh, sitting on the bedside of his mother at her house um, when the coroner says these murders happen. Uh, she has dementia. There's a house sitter, a uh, caregiver, round the clock care, with him, and they're watching a game show television. They're watching a game show on television. 
What Jim Griffin is saying here directly conflicts with what sources are saying the evidence in the case points to. It's important to note that according to our sources, this body fluid spatter is not the only piece of evidence placing Ellick at Moselle when he claims he was nowhere near there. But its analysis could, in part, explain why the investigation has continued for more than 10 months without arrest. Sources have not disclosed details about whether the spatter was from blood, fluid, or other biological matter. They have referred to the evidence as significant. This evidence is separate from what we've already reported about the guns in this case. Multiple sources told Fitz News at least one of the weapons used in the double homicide belonged to the Murdoch family. Now, it's been several months since we last talked in detail about the double homicide investigation. So in this episode, we'll tell you everything we know about the June 7th double homicide, including a lot of new information about the Murdoch family. We will speak with an expert about what high-impact spatter is and what it means. And most importantly, we will put all of this into context. So... We have talked at length about what happened at Moselle on June 7, 2021, but we haven't told you much about what was going on with the Murdoch family around that time. This week, Fitznews founding editor Will Folks reported one of many bombshells in the Murdoch saga, that the state grand jury was investigating the Murdoch family's financial situation before the double homicide. This news outlet has learned exclusively that Murdoch's finances were the focus of a statewide grand jury. In fact, a judge in Columbia, South Carolina, Judge Robert Hood, was made aware, at the very least, perhaps signed off on, but we know he was made aware, in April of 2021, of a subpoena by the grand jury to get Alec Murdoch's bank records. And obviously, given the relationship between Murdoch and these various banks in the low country, it's a fair assessment that if the banks were aware of this subpoena, they probably told Murdoch pretty quickly, given that the banks have been... Uh, by all appearances anyway, an integral part of the various financial scams that Murdoch ran against his former law firm clients. In fact, a subpoena was issued for investigators to comb through the Murdoch's finances in April of 2021. That's less than six weeks before the murders. Keep in mind, Alec Murdoch was still stealing money at this point, allegedly. According to the indictments, between March and July of 2021, Ellick is accused of manipulating a Bamberg County attorney named Chris Wilson, who is also one of Ellick's close longtime friends, into writing him three checks totaling $792,000 for his share of the legal fees in a case these two were working on together instead of writing that check to PMPED per protocol, according to the indictment. Murdoch told Wilson that he was going to structure his fees himself because of his potential civil liability in the Mallory Beach boat crash, according to the indictment. He was apparently admitting that he was trying to hide money from the Beach family. He allegedly lied to Wilson and told him that PMPD was aware of this. Murdoch didn't structure the fees. He just took the money for himself allegedly. In fact, on April 20th, 2021, Ellick allegedly stole one of those checks. The state grand jury subpoena would 
definitely throw a large wrench in Alec Murdoch's whole stealing millions from clients scam. Why was the state grand jury investigating Alec Murdoch's finances? Remember, in the spring of 2021, Paul Murdoch was out on bond for the fatal boat crash that killed 19-year-old Mallory Beach. While that case wasn't close to trial, even though it had been more than two years since the crash, the grand jury was investigating something else. In the spring of 2021, Alec and his family, as well as certain members of law enforcement that they counted as friends, unbeknownst to most people at the time, were being investigated for interfering in the 2019 boat crash investigation and obstructing justice. Maybe they were trying to determine whether any of the Murdochs had paid South Carolina Department of Natural Resources officers or others to muck up the scene, destroy or lose evidence, or not offer Paul Murdoch a field sobriety test that night. Those are just a few guesses. Anyway, pressure was most certainly building on Alec Murdoch in the spring of 2021. Adding to the mountain of problems he was facing at the time, Alec's father, the family patriarch, Randolph Murdoch III, was dying of cancer. Randolph was powerful. He served as the solicitor over the 14th Circuit for two decades before he retired in 2006. Randolph was respected by powerful players across the low country, especially by law enforcement members. But that respect did not carry through to the next generation. That respect just wasn't there for Alec and his brothers, like it was for Randolph. Randolph dying of cancer meant that the Murdoch family was losing their fixer, the man who always kept the Murdoch family together and was always able to keep his boys, Alec especially, from facing the consequences of their actions. For Alec, his family's power was dying too. The Murdoch name wasn't what it used to be, not since the boat crash. Alec's family wasn't what they used to be either. As we've reported before, the Murdochs appear to be living separate lives in the spring of 2021. Maggie was living in Edisto, South Carolina at the family's beach house, where she moved in 2020. Buster was living in the Charlotte area where he was working, and Paul, well, Paul was all over the place. Something we want to note here because it's important as we're talking about Alec's situation leading up to the murders. Paul's reckless behavior didn't seem to change at all after the boat crash. In fact, he seemed to learn nothing from the whole experience and was becoming an even bigger liability for Alec. The summer after the crash, we heard from people who had seen Paul out partying, drinking, and boating around Edisto Beach. And up until his murder, Liz and I both received regular reports of Paul's excessive partying and drunken outbursts in and around the Low Country and in Colombia. But something we haven't reported before, Paul's credit card was apparently denied at a bar in Charleston in the weeks leading up to the murders, according to a source close to the situation. Several sources told us that this was strange for Paul. He often used his mother's credit card we mention this credit card thing because it's something a reliable source told me last summer, but now that so many pieces of the puzzle are in place, it's coming into focus again. 
You might remember a while ago, we told you about a Daily Mail article that said that a source close to the family told reporters that Maggie had been worried about their financial situation in the months leading up to the murder. The source told the Daily Mail that Maggie was upset because a check she had written to a local charity had bounced a few months before the murders. Also, remember what the probate documents told us about the Murdoch's finances at the time. According to the documents that John Marvin chose to disclose, Maggie had just $57 left in her Bank of America bank account, the only bank account solely in Maggie's name listed at the time of her death. Maggie apparently owed a lot of money. Over $2.1 million was owed in the mortgages on both of their properties. It looks to us like the Murdochs weren't paying their Palmetto State Bank mortgages at all. And on top of all that, Maggie had over 10 grand in unpaid bills. It's safe to say that Alec Murdoch's financial situation was stressful at the time around the murders. And again, there's the boat crash lawsuit. For more than two years, the Murdochs refused to settle the lawsuit that was filed by Mallory Beach's mother for Mallory's wrongful death. At that point last spring, two insurance companies had already refused to cover the crash. Only one of Alec Murdoch's insurance policies, Progressive Insurance, agreed to cover the Murdochs in the lawsuit. But the policy was only worth $500,000, and the claims from the lawsuit would likely be millions given the number of victims and the amount of damage. Alec Murdoch was apparently going around town claiming to be poor, so Mark Tinsley, the Beach family attorney, decided to call his bluff and began formally demanding proof of Alec's financial situation. In the fall of 2020, Murdoch's attorneys made it clear to the court and to Tinsley that Alec had no intention of answering any of the questions he was being asked, calling the questions irrelevant and immaterial. He wasn't going to share information about his checking and savings accounts, his retirement accounts, the properties he owned or had an interest in, his stock holdings, his life insurance policies, or his investments. And he certainly wasn't going to provide the name of the person who prepared their taxes for the last three years. As we now know, he apparently had a lot of reasons not to share that information. The pressure on Alec Murdoch to open his books kept increasing though, and a hearing was scheduled for June 10th, 2021, when the judge would hear arguments in the Beach family's motion to compel Murdoch to show them his money. Which brings us to June 7th, just three days before that scheduled hearing. On the day of his death, Paul worked at his Uncle John Marvin's equipment rental store, ate dinner with his uncle's family, and around six o'clock, went to Moselle to check on his friend, Rogan Gibson's dog, who was boarded at the dog kennels at Moselle. This is important because it means that Paul's presence at Moselle that night was unexpected. Even if we didn't know this information though, Paul's pattern would have been difficult to predict. Maggie, however, was expected to be at Moselle that night. In fact, multiple sources have told us at Fitz News that Alec Murdoch lured Maggie to Moselle that night. According to our sources, Maggie told others that she was hesitant to go to Moselle that night, but ultimately she decided it was the right thing to do. It's not clear whether any of this information was found on Maggie's iPhone, which appears to have been tossed in the woods near Moselle. It was found the next morning by Alec's co-workers at the 14th Circuit Solicitor's Office, with some help from Alec's younger brother. 
We don't know exactly what happened after Maggie and Paul arrived at Moselle, but we're told there is another piece of evidence that places Ellick at the dog kennels on the property before they died, which is contradictory to what he told law enforcement from the get-go. In his 911 call that night, which he made at 10.07 p.m., there are a couple things that stick out to us now, knowing what we know. First, as you probably know, 911 calls start recording typically soon after you dial the number. Here's what it sounded like when Alec called. After the dial-in, you can hear dogs barking in the distance, then a ring, then silence, then you hear Alec Murdoch sobbing. During that call, it sounds like Alec is moving around a lot, which could be for a number of reasons, including poor cell phone reception at the kennels. I've been up to it now, it's bad. The next part is important because it's the first time that Alec told authorities he was not at Moselle before this. Okay, did you hear anything or did you come home and find them? No, man, I've been gone. I, I just came back. I okay, and was call. anyone else supposed to be call. at your house? No, ma'am. <laughs> Please hurry. When the dispatcher asked whether he saw anyone in the vicinity of the home when he arrived, Alec Murdoch said no. He was then asked whether he noticed anything out of place. And does anything look out of place? Ma'am, not, not particularly, really, no ma'am. At one point in the call, the dispatcher asked Alec not to touch the bodies of his family members. Okay. I don't want you to touch them at all, okay? I don't, I don't know if you've already touched them, but I don't, I don't want you to touch them just in case they can get any kind of evidence, okay? But Alec was quick to tell the dispatcher that he had already touched the bodies. I already touched them trying to get a, um, to see if they were breathing. This is important. Because it sounds like Alec is attempting to establish a reason for having blood on his clothes. And one more thing to note about the 911 call. When it was first released to the public, a lot of people noticed that Alec seemed to be saying to himself, Paul, why do you have to get involved? Once you hear it, it's hard to hear anything but that. Okay, and was anyone else supposed to be at your house? Maybe Paul wasn't supposed to be there. Maybe he wasn't the target? We'll be right back. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. 
According to police reports, deputies from the Colleton County Sheriff's Office arrived on scene at 10.25 p.m. and immediately began investigating the case as a double murder. SLED was contacted 21 minutes after Alec Murdoch called 911. The Colleton County Sheriff's Office asked SLED to take over the case due to the complexity of the investigation and the agency's multiple ties to the powerful Murdoch family. According to our sources, at least one of the weapons used in the double homicide belonged to the Murdoch family. But our sources have never said why they believe this to be the case or whether the other weapon also belonged to the Murdoch family. They also have never said whether either weapon was recovered. Ultimately, the weapons will play a key role in the investigation, especially now that it appears that high-velocity impact spatter places Alec so physically close to the actual shootings. If the weapons weren't recovered though, the obvious question is going to be, where did they go and when? Maybe even more importantly is how did they get to wherever they went? For instance, if the weapons weren't recovered, did anyone help dispose of the weapons and was that person compensated for their assistance? More than two weeks after the murders, a public relations firm hired by the Murdoch family released a statement announcing a $100,000 reward to anyone providing tips that led to arrests by law enforcement. However, tips were required to have been submitted before September 30th, 2021 to qualify for that reward. When that deadline expired, a spokesperson who represented the Murdoch family released the following statement to multiple news stations. We are disappointed that no one has stepped forward with any leads to solve the murder and claim the $100,000 reward. At this time, the family is evaluating what additional steps can be taken to solve the murders of Maggie and Paul. Patterns in bloodstains and other bodily fluid can help investigators determine what occurred during a violent death, particularly as it relates to the positioning of the victim and the suspect. To learn more about high-velocity impact spatter in the science involved in analyzing bloodstain patterns or the patterns of other fluids and biological matters at a crime scene, we spoke with Linda Rourke, who is a professor at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York. Just a quick note about our conversation, we didn't ask Linda any questions specific to the details of the case, nor is she commenting on the Murdoch murders investigation in any way. High-velocity impact, typically that's associated when there is the use of a high-velocity weapon. So if a high-velocity uh, or a high-energy rifle is used, for instance, um, and especially if it's used at close range, this is physics. Basically, greater force means greater, you know, the force that impacts, especially something like a human body, you're going to have a lot more damage occurring. And there are certain patterns that are more consistent with a high-velocity impact. And you may have seen this yourself in doing your research that, you're more likely to get this combination of some larger blood stain pattern, so larger droplets of blood, and then in the background, it'll look like there's a mist, like a cloudy mist of blood in the background. And this is more likely to occur 
when you have a situation where there is a high velocity impact. You would not get that. can't think of a situation where, let's say, someone got stabbed and, you know, no one has the quote-unquote power or the energy to create the kind of damage that you would see that would result in this combined pattern of larger blood droplets along with the mist uh, of, of blood that comes about because of the high energy impact. In the case of the Murdochs, sources close to the investigation tell Fitz News that Maggie Murdoch was shot multiple times with a high-powered rifle. One of the bullets reportedly went through her back, and the other allegedly went through the back of her head as she was lying on the ground face down. This is the first time multiple sources have confirmed details about Maggie Murdoch's wounds. According to his death certificate, Paul Murdoch was killed by two shotgun wounds, one to the chest and the other to the head. The gunshot wounds to both Maggie's and Paul's heads could be a reason sources told Fitz News on June 8, 2021, that the two were killed execution style. Alec Murdoch's clothing that night was stained with blood, which is consistent with his account of touching the bodies. But it is the high-velocity impact spatter on his shirt that places him at the scene and in proximity to one or both of the victims at the time of their shooting deaths. To differentiate high-velocity impact spatter with a more passive transfer, let's say uh, there's a scenario where you know you you come home and there's a loved one on the ground uh, on, on the floor and they seem to have, you know been bleeding and you're you're trying to provide let's say CPR uh, mouth to mouth uh, a bleeding person you know there's going to be wet blood if, especially you know if it's a recent situation uh, you can consider the possibilities where you come back and it's been a week and the person has been there and things have dried up and you're not going to have transfer in the same way. So for a fairly fresh incident where there's wet blood on the victim, then touching the victim, uh, leaning against them, the wet blood from their clothing can easily transfer to the your own clothing or to your hands or uh, wherever you happen to be touching a bloodied area of that victim. Uh, that does not typically look the same as high-velocity impact spatter. Now, if you were to ask me about possible scenarios, it would be really kind of stretching it if that victim on the ground happened to have some kind of high-velocity impact spatter on them because someone else got shot, for instance, and then you went to kneel against them and the similar pattern got transferred onto your clothing. That is just like quite a convoluted scenario. For that to happen, uh, more likely, if and especially if the victim um, has been shot or stabbed or bludgeoned, and they're quite bloody, the blood that is coming out of their wounds would likely obscure any previous pattern that was on their clothing. Uh, and so you're going to be getting transfer patterns that are an indication of where the person who found the victim touched the victim. What exactly the high-velocity impact spatter might mean to the investigation will remain unclear until charges are filed against the person or persons determined to be responsible for killing Maggie and Paul Murdoch. Stay tuned. As we were writing this episode, we got some big breaking news in the Bowen Turner case. 
On Tuesday night, Wolf Folks of Fitznews.com reported something huge. Outrage from the victims and their families, as well as from the public, many of whom are our listeners and our readers, prompted prosecutors to revisit one of the three rape cases. Specifically, solicitor Bill Weeks, David Miller's boss, is reportedly reconsidering his decision to dismiss the Dallas Dollar case. And that is a big deal. And this takes me to my final points of this podcast. On the Bowen Turner case, Richland County's decision to withhold public records in our social media presence. Corruption, incompetence, and dereliction of duty does not survive under scrutiny. Public dollars are used to employ and pay for a number of public services, but the quality of those services suffered when left to operate in a vacuum. It's up to the public to either expose malfeasance on their own, or the public can choose to support media agencies that can do that for them. That is our plight as journalists, to uncover the rot so that citizens can take action. We believe that our show and Fitz News' reporting help pressure solicitor Bill Weeks to desperately try to correct his assistant solicitor's mistakes by canceling the effort to drop Bowen's rape charges. But that is not enough, in our opinion. It should have been handled properly in the first place. It seems like it's very hard for those in power to do the right thing from the beginning. Moving forward and with your help, we want to make it hard for these same people to do the wrong thing. We know putting pressure on public agencies like the Richland County Ombudsman's Office is the right course of action to expose whatever rot is waiting to be discovered in Alec Murdoch's phone calls. Assistant County Attorney Chris Ziegler's decision to withhold those calls even though no temporary injunction has been granted is doing a disservice to the citizens of Richland County and the state of South Carolina. We're calling it Ziegler's decision, by the way, because he's the one that signed the letter saying that we wouldn't be getting the recordings. Ziegler is a public employee. He receives his paycheck from public tax dollars. He works for the public. And we believe that is 100% in the public's best interest for the recordings of Alec Murdoch's jailhouse phone calls to be released. There are many unnamed victims in this saga, and now is not the time to be providing cover for anyone causing harm. Bill Weeks, David Miller, Brad Hutto, Dick Harpootlian, the Attorney General, Sled, Chris Ziegler, and up until his arrest, Alec Murdoch are or were public officials who took a salary and power of some kind from the public and the people of South Carolina. That privilege to work for the public, to serve the public, as politicians like to say when they're seeking votes, opens them up to public scrutiny. Whether it's from a podcast, Fitz News, the people of the state, or even each other. That is how a representative republic works. 
This is what the Freedom of Information Act seeks to protect. I shouldn't have to say this, but there are a few people out there who do not get the distinction, or maybe they didn't learn this in school, that I am not a public employee, nor am I an elected official. And this podcast is not paid for by any public funds. When public money is in play, that means accountability is not expected, it's mandated. There are checks and balances, and the media is one of those checks. Chris Ziegler and all of the other public employees accepted their position knowing that they have a much different standard to live up to than those of us in the private sector. On a similar note, our social media channels are not meant to be an open forum for people on the wrong side of history to troll. We want our pages to be a place of positivity and truth. Start your own channel if you want to troll people or post your negativity elsewhere. We are working hard to build a following of people who, like us, are sick and tired of government agencies and bad actors working against the interests of transparency, truth, and justice. Again, corruption, incompetence, and dereliction of duty cannot survive in the sunlight. We will continue to call out people and agencies who are on the wrong side of history, and we hope that our listeners and followers will continue to heed our calls for action until those in the public sector who try to dodge accountability from their boss, the citizens, are run out of office, the town, the county, or the state that they have failed to serve. An informed public means a safer, healthier, and better community. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned to Fitznews.com and the Murdoch Murders podcast for the latest updates in this case. The Murdoch Murders Podcast is created by me, Mandy Matney, and my fiancé, David Moses. Our executive editor is Liz Farrell. Produced by Luna Shark Productions. My name is Mandy Matney, creator of the number one global hit Murdoch Murders Podcast, the show that started it all. Now known as True Sunlight, my partner in true crime, journalist Liz Farrell, and I are taking on new cases while still pursuing justice for those we met along the way. Lunashark Media's True Sunlight Podcast is the antithesis of true crime. True Sunlight values accuracy over access journalism. True Sunlight shines with empathy, not exploitation. True Sunlight is the intersection of true crime, journalism, and systemic corruption. True Sunlight's mission is to expose the truth wherever it leads, give voice to victims, and get the story straight. True Sunlight continues to shed light on Stephen Smith's case and the Murdoch's co-conspirators, but we also take deep dives into other cases around the country, from Grant and Gracie Solomon to Sarah Lynn Colucci, Micah Miller, and beyond. True Sunlight empowers listeners to understand their legal and judicial systems with our unique brand of pesky journalism. Listen to True Sunlight wherever you you get your podcast or visit truesunlight.com to learn more.